This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. We're back in the studio after a few weeks of some uh, epic guests on the podcast. And when I say epic guests, I mean we had some great guests in the top two uh, Australian 70.3 triathletes in Sam Appleton and Ellie Salthouse. If you haven't listened to those episodes from the last few weeks, go back and listen to them because they are absolute rippers. But we've got a big episode today because over the last few weeks, there's been some major things happening around the world of sport or particularly sports that we love. Uh, Some epic races to talk about, some records broken. Plenty to discuss, and we can't wait to sink our teeth into it. Uh, but before we get into it all, Dad, welcome to the podcast. Back in the studio, let's start with our normal segment. What are you grateful for? Uh, the one I'm grateful for sounds a little bit like it's been said over and over and over, but I just feel now like we're coming to a new phase in the world. And I know there's a lot of bad things happening with the war in Ukraine and COVID still exists and, you know, the other day I heard there's a, a mosquito virus going around now. But but I really feel that the events in sport are resuming back to normal um, and, you know, sport of cycling, um, athletics, triathlon, all the events are back on. They're not getting cancelled. Um, and I think I've, just for the first time in two years, I actually feel like we're coming out of the COVID, I know there's still people dying and still people being very sick and we're still coaching people who are just contact, contracting the disease, you know, yesterday and today. But in terms of uh, events being uh, available, it's, it feels almost like we're, we're back to normal and I'm quite grateful that we've done a, a hard two years of really battling and uh, to be honest, I think most sporting bodies did a fantastic job getting events still on. Um, we still ran the Olympics. We still ran the world titles mm. in cycling. We still had a lot of you know triathlon events. Um, yeah, it's amazing. The AFL had a season with a premiership. These are all things that uh, you would never have thought in the middle of a pandemic could still – you would have an asterisk on the trophy saying, yeah. you know, due to World War Two, this didn't happen. Mm. Um, due to COVID, this didn't happen. So I feel grateful that well, I think we're – you never know what's going to happen exactly. next, do you? Yeah, that's the biggest lesson we've um, learned. <laughs> Something bad could even happen, you know, in 2022, worse than what's happening now. And yep. there could be a war and, you know, the whole world could be involved in it, which would be really disappointing. But but from a COVID point of view, I really feel confident that um, that things are starting to, to, you know, the spring classics. I can't wait. It's it's We've just started and entered the, the first, you know, I've had Strata Bianca and um, Paris Nice has started and, you know, there's there's races everywhere and triathlon races, you know. Locally in Australia, we've already had Geelong and you know Shepparton's this weekend, and Melbourne's the following weekend. It's it's pretty exciting times. Malula Bar's this weekend, mm-hmm. so there's lots of things happening. So I'm really grateful for that. It's really exciting because for once it feels like you can plan for a race, knowing that most likely it won't get cancelled. Um, but that said, we've learned our lesson the last few years, and you have to be prepared for anything. Uh, my gratitude is uh, a little bit sombre, uh, but I am grateful that I got to see Shane Warne play cricket. Um, that was a real tragedy uh, that he passed away. And for our international audience um, that don't even know the sport of cricket, it's a sport that's played by not many countries, but it is. Who's the equivalent uh, American 
I was, this, a lot of it, my friends and I have spoken about this um, because the night that it actually happened, uh, one of my friends was hanging out with some Americans and uh, he was out and everyone that was out at the pub and everyone was, was talking about it. All, a, a lot of the guys were saying to each other, did you hear about Shane Warne? Um, and he said it was a really poor mood. It really affected everyone that was out at the time. And um, the American guys are going, what's going on? Who is this guy? They've, ne- they've never heard of him. And, you know, cricket's a real dominant sport in Australia. It's played... Commonwealth. Yeah, among the Commonwealth countries. Um, and Shane Warne was one of, my, one of Australia's greatest players. And uh, the equivalent we found was maybe, you know, Kobe Bryant in America. He passed away, I think it was last year or two years ago, um, suddenly. And, you know, one of America's greatest basketballers. And the whole country mourned that. Um, because some of these players really, um, you know, they stand for more than just a sport. And uh, often you grow up hearing about you know, legends of sport before your time, um, but I'm just grateful that I grew up and would, can remember clearly uh, watching Shane Warne bowl and uh, you know getting to witness one of the greatest cricket players of uh, all time is something special. And to be able to say that you saw that person in person, you know, future generations they'll hear about Shane Warne, but they'll have never seen them seen him. So yeah, that's my gratitude. Is that yeah, I got to see him play. It's, it was pretty special. Let's move into uh, everything we want to get into today, and that's what's been happening around the world of sport. Um, and as you said, Dad, the the Spring Classics have started. There is there is just so much going on, and we want to we want to dig our teeth into all of it. Um, and and let's start with cycling because uh, basically, from two weekends ago uh, to, for the next eight weeks, there are just some absolutely epic races on. The Spring Classics are back every weekend. He's got something on. Paris Nice, uh, eight stage tour is on. Uh, one of the major tours. Uh, Torino Ad- Ad- Adriatic. I can never pronounce yep. it right. Is on. Um, there's just so m- so much to watch. And um, Strada Bianca, one of the unofficial classics, uh, was on. Monuments. T- yeah, Monuments yep. was on uh, a week ago, and it was it was an epic start to the season. And we we just as always, we just can't wait to watch more and more of it. So let's start with your thoughts on the Strata Bianca, uh, the male and female, both really fun races to watch. Boy, they were two contrasting races. Um, the, the women's race I found oh, riveting right till the finish. Um, you did not know who was going to win until the last 200 metres, and that's some sort of race. Uh, two women against each other. One's an unbelievable, successful champion. And Van Vluten, yeah. And the other one's... Bit more of a track rider, um, up and comer, uh, Belgian, close to our hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, Lottie Kapeki, yep. And and to see her, she's not the same talent, I don't think, but her mental strength was incredible. To hold on to Van Gluten's attack on the last climb. For those of you who don't know what the Strata Bianca finish is like, it's it's a last kilometre, which is basically straight uphill through this narrow corridor of screaming fans it's it's a, a cauldron it's it's it would spine tingling i think if if you were Pogaccio who was riding up there solo but the two women were fighting against each other and and it was really a tactical thing at the finish that that got uh lottie uh to win um because she she actually outsmarted mm. um Van Vluten. Vluten, yeah. um and i just thought that was uh, you know they're both very good riders, but I think the best rider didn't win that race yet in the males race. The best rider was by far the best rider who won mm. that race um, easily. So, Tactics, so it's yeah. two different contrasting races. It is one of the races that I love. Um, it, it's not. It's not a race that's been going for very long. Sixteen years. Um, From a cycling tactic perspective, what did Lottie Kopecky do there? Because Van Vluten is one of the most accomplished riders of all time in cycling, and again, clearly the better rider. 
How did she lose that? Or more importantly, how did Lodi Kopecky win? What well, was she doing? It was on the climb. Because when you get to the climb, I think there's – when you get to the finish of the climb, I think there's 500 to go or 400. Yeah, approximately. I'm not sure. Yeah. And that is quite important because the climb turns right and then there's, I think, four more turns. Uh, a left, a right, a left, a right. And those turns, if you're not in front, you can't win. And so – Lottie Kopecky, after the climb, managed to stay on the back of Van Vooten's wheel, got around the first corner, came up alongside, and then got in front. And then that was it. She couldn't lose from that point on mm. because you can't pass again because the streets are so narrow mm. and the turns are so sharp that it, it would be – you'd have to knock each other off mm. to get past again. So that was the, the great tactical move and Van Vooten shouldn't have let her come alongside. It's easy to say that sitting watching. She was exhausted. She'd just ridden – seven watts per kilo for the last one kilo. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it was pretty impressive by both of them. But the winning move might have been getting in front of her, but what got her to that position was the winning move, which was to stay on Van Vluten's wheel mm-hmm. where Van Vluten's strength was, which is she rode everybody off the wheel except Lottie Kopecky, who, who must have just been staring at that cassette saying, you're not getting away from mm-hmm. me. And that is the mental toughness that she had, and that's what's an outstanding racer. and And she will win many races because she is a winner. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's exciting to have another rider come along who can, can challenge. challenge yeah. um, and I was pretty excited about that. That you know, I actually watched that race, and then I went to bed because the men's race came on next, and I thought oh, I. I'd, I'll just watch the men's another time because I was quite satisfied. I had yeah. my fill of um, yeah. <laughs> of really competitive. And, and I just think the, the standard of the women's racing is unbelievably improving. Um, their skill, their ability to descend, their climbing, the, the power, their tactics, um, they're all willing now to attack each other, mm-hmm. which is what frustrated me when I used to watch it, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you ever got to watch the races because mm-hmm. they never showed them. But, mm-hmm. uh, but there was never the excitement of attacking and – and the tactics of the teams is, is really at a at a really good level now. And the Pog, uh, he tacked with 50 kilometres to go. And uh, if you didn't see stats, final solo 50-kilometre attack, he held 350 watts for the final 50 kilometres. I think he averaged 39.8 or something. He covered 50 Ks in an hour, an hour 18 or an hour 20. Um, max wattage of 810 or something, probably up that last climb. And he just he held off um, second place by 40 seconds and probably the next 20 riders by one to two minutes. Just an absolutely absurd um, solo performance. Yeah. It's one for the ages. I reckon it's – it's. I don't think you'll see that type of victory in a professional rank ever again. I, I think there's only been probably two or three rides like it in the history of cycling where someone's been able to ride away from a professional peloton solo, 50k to go on one of the most toughest courses against the biggest teams. Um, First Tour de France rider to win Stradabianca. Yeah. Um, and his list at 23 years of age, his list of victories yeah. is... Sorry, I meant Tour de France winner, not rider. Tour de France winner. Yeah. So, yeah, um, both. yeah. He's breaking records left, right and centre and... Um, and he did it with such um, skill because he did it on some downhill bits. He actually uh, he actually went to the front over Simon Clark, who mm. was who was leading on the next downhill bit on the dirt. Mm. And Pogacar's skill as a dirt rider is incredible. Uh, he and we've talked about this. A lot of the good riders, Van Aert, Van der Poel, 
Um, Even Cadell in his day. Yeah, there's been so many good mountain bike riders or or trail riders or anybody who's really had to battle the you know un- undulating terrain in the forests become unbelievably great road riders. Um, and the British rider who's just won a few Pidcock, who's who's also Pidcock, yeah. emerging the yeah. same. And and every time you see a new rider come through, ask the question: Have they ridden uh, cross? Cross training, mountain biking, and the answer is in, invariably yes. Mm. Um, and so his skill was actually what got him the initial twenty meters on. And who was he? Who was he going over? Alaphilippe, Simon Clark, and the best riders in in the race. Um, the the other uh, quick step rider, Alp, uh, I can't even think of his name. As Asgren, um, and and you know he, he, there were no. No domestiques at the front at that particular yeah, part of at ninety eight k to go, yep. and he's got a gap of twenty meters, thirty meters, just on mountain bike handling skills um, in the dirt, and and that was that was kind of oh, I've got thirty meters, and I, I, if those guys had a, could have gone with him, they would have. They were a little bit gassed, and he was riding skillfully better on the sand than they were, so it wasn't like they let him go; mm. they couldn't ride with him for those two reasons and then that 30 meters became 70 and all of a sudden they're now having to think oh geez we have to bring him back you can't but but who's do gonna, we who's, but, gonna, who's going to but do, do we yeah, have to yeah. bring him back it's 49 k's to go that's suicide um and this won't last mm. but boy did he prove them wrong and i think about four or five k later he committed mm. to oh, i'm going to ride solo up until then he was still hedging his bets i feel he wasn't that's my impression mm. and then once you commit then you're all you're all in and and i think i did talk about that with one of my one of our travello riders during the week about about half committing and fully committing and and having the confidence in your own ability to go all in mm-hmm. and and be prepared for uh, risk reward mm. which could be this could blow up in my face or it could be one of the wins for the ages and and that's what it ended up being. I always love it when you talk about that because I, w- I always say to people, you're such a conservative coach and conservative can have a negative connotation, which I don't think it is at all. And, you know, we're dealing with endurance sports. The name of the game is to be conservative. You basically, you don't want to be exciting or um, potentially blowing yourself up. But when you are telling an athlete that you need to consider doing this and, and, and risking it blowing up in your face. You're saying that for a reason because um, you want them to achieve something special, something greater than they've probably achieved before and you're trying to get them out of that comfort zone. It's, it's really cool. Two things, two factors kind of stood out to me uh, worth mentioning. One is that Michael Matthews was doing a lot of training, the Aussie rider, with uh, Pogacar over um, the Christmas break and he was posting some footage online and uh, he posted one footage of them going up a training right up a hill and the Pog was doing a wheelie up the hill. And uh, after a couple of days of posting together, Michael Matthews just wrote, you are an insane person. Um, and it's just clear that Pogacar loves riding his bike. He loves the sport. He just likes to have fun and, and go for it. And that comes out in his racing style. It's unbelievable what he's achieved at 23. I feel like that's a factor in his success and um, there's something about the kid that is just um, special. Uh, and also we spoke about coming into form in the spring classics. And this is one of the first monument attempts. Not every rider is going to be in form and, and maybe he's coming super hot, um, super in form. And that's how he's able to ride away. Whether it's the Alaphilippe's are using a few of these races to get themselves there. That's why they couldn't hold it. Or they're all on the same level and he's just better. It's just interesting to see 
where they're at right now and what's going to happen over the next eight weeks. And then more importantly, how Pogacar is going to go come Tour de France time. Well, we'll know the answer that at the end of the spring classics, but I can tell you one thing is these, like it's not a monument, but it should be. <laughs> it should be the sixth monument <laughs> and it will be down the track, I reckon. The fact that it's only been going 16 years is hard for it to, to <laughs> get that. But, you know, there's a whole lot of things going on here. Um, the the pro peloton riders want to win this race. This is one of the ones they want to win. Of course they want to win every race, exactly. but there's yeah. some races that are more outstanding than others. And don't forget, there was that unbelievably bad crash with the whole peloton. Exactly. Yeah. And I've never seen a peloton crash like that. That was insane wins mm-hmm. between uh, two kind of hill bits there was a bit in between where the wind blows I think double Mm. and I've never seen bike riders go sideways on a road and of course the unstable sand Mm -hmm. was making it worse Mm -hmm. but but Alaphilippe did the you know for those who've seen it you know he could have got nine out of ten from the judges for that flip that he did and landed beautifully on his backside and then dive forward so the guys behind him wouldn't land on top of him when they crashed um to think on your feet like that was in split second yeah so he's a super talent isn't he but but I think that you know, that would have really affected them. They had to chase back. Um, you know, almost everybody fell. Yeah. Um, so there was very few people who, who didn't. So it, the, that affected everybody's race. But I'm I'm not using that as an excuse. I don't think Alaphilippe's in the form that he wants to be, but I'm sure he would have taken the victory um, because mm-hmm. he's been training the house down and doing some other not-so-well-known races and mm-hmm. doing quite well. But uh, he was about to win another race prior to that. I can't even think of what the name was, but he got cramp. He was in the last four riders – got cramp and then couldn't actually – I've never seen a pro get cramp mm. at that level. It was it was really good to see mm-hmm. almost. Mm-hmm. Shocking for him. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if because of the crash he, he stuffed up his nutrition a bit because it was there was a lot of mayhem or – Yeah, well, this is the previous race where he got cramp. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so he was – you know, there was nothing happened to him in that previous race, yeah. but he couldn't finish off the race. Yeah. And, and yeah. he was in prime position. He got away with a group of guys chasing uh, one guy up the road, two guys up the road, and they couldn't bridge the gap. Yeah. And yeah. he – it's like he could have mucked his nutrition up there, but it mm-hmm. could, it's like he's just not in that Quite, race yeah, yeah. race form. Yeah, yeah. And you know how you can be training the house down, but racing's another level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to be race fit. I always mm-hmm. talk about being race fit, mm-hmm. and you can only get that by racing. racing. Yeah. And, you know, you can train as much as you like, um, but you don't get that unpredictableness of uh, reactions to whatever's happening around you, whereas in training – it's reasonably predictable. And that's why we always talk about having an unpredictable bunch to ride with is really good because it's very race-like. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can get a bunch to do that, if you're a local bunch, you can make it a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. Boys, today, do whatever you like, whenever you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and also in a, in a pro peloton race, you have got particularly domestique guys who are there principally to ride as hard as they possibly can, knowing they're going to pull out. And that's not what happens to the average Joe in an age group race or in a, a club race. You don't have people sacrificing themselves exactly. yep. to make the race incredibly hard. So only the pros can, only the, the top guys, the GC guys yeah. can keep up. Yeah. So you don't get that scenario happening. Yeah. So that's a really important point. But, yeah. um, but just talking about what we what we mentioned before about, um, uh, you know me being a conservative coach, it was a really good um, thing that you raised because this week, in, which is ironic because you mentioned that not knowing what I'd been discussing with some of the riders, um, we have a thing, an event called uh, uh, the Peaks Challenge, which is a 245k uh, ride around the the 
the bright region. We've, yeah, we've I've just got four and a half thousand yeah. meters of climbing. We yeah, we love the, we love the peaks challenge. We mentioned it a lot on this podcast. It's pretty. It's, it's this weekend. Yeah. Anyway, there's a, there's there's nine Trivello people in the in the event, and they're all going to be doing it at, finishing in different times um, between under eight hours for the best and possibly eleven hours for you know the the other guys um, and everything in between. But there's a couple of guys in particular who've done it a lot of times and. This is me showing you an example of you need to actually establish what you can do the first time you ever do an event and if you're really risky, have a crack at it but be you know be okay that it'll blow up in your face and you, you creep home. But these guys have done it a few times and my advice to them is have a crack. You've already got the time that you're happy with. Now go for a time that's a PB and you have to actually risk way more and I'm pushing these guys. One guy's done, you know, in the eight hour – you know, variations of eight hours from... But you have to be a really good rider to You have to be, that. yeah. yeah. Is, you know, you're in the top 40 riders out of, I don't know how many enter, 4,000, I don't know. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of people in this race. <laughs> yeah. um, and to be in the top percent, you know, you've got to be really at the top of your game. And, and there's two riders in that category. There's actually three riders, sorry. And I won't name them, but there's three riders in that category. I'm telling all three... Um, and they're not in their 30s, one is, mm-hmm. and two are in their 50s and one's in their 60s. Mm-hmm. And I'm pushing them to be in the eight-hour. Nine-hour, ten-hour is probably, you know, the top 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, it's the rest of the field. Um, anybody who does eight hours is the top 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people who can do seven hours, 20, seven hours, 30, and they're more like pro riders. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm pushing these guys to, to ride with the eight-hour group and, and there's the first climb, Tawonga Gap, which is about a 30-minute climb from Mount Beauty to the top of Tawonga. From Tawonga to Mount to the top of Tawonga is only a 24-minute, 22-minute, 20-minute climb, depending on who, who you are. Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, Chris Froome, it's probably a 16-minute climb but, <laughs> yeah. um, or Banal or someone like that. But, uh, but, you know, I'm telling these guys, they have to actually be willing to risk everything for that first climb to stay with the eight-hour group because from there to the next climb is like an hour and a half through the valley and, mm. and you can sit in. And then it, then the climb at Mount Hotham is a major climb. So I'm explaining this detail because I, I want you to understand what you're risking. There's a, the Hotham climb is a 90-minute climb and then the Falls climb is another 90-minute climb. And So you do a half-hour climb and then big ride and then you've got a, yeah, a 90-minute climb, big ride and then finish with a 90-minute climb. And this is for the fast guys. Yeah. And, you know, Tawonga could be 40 minutes and Hotham could be two hours 30 and Falls could be three hours for the rest of the guys. So I'm talking about the guy going mm-hmm. fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you could risk everything and get to Falls and have nothing. Um, so risk-reward, from my coaching point of view, these guys have already done the, the, the steady state and got good results. Now I want them to push themselves and see if they can get a great result. So so I will be an attacking coach when I know that the riders, A, are in the form that they can do it mm-hmm. and they have the, they have more chance. The, the possibility is is more than likely than not mm-hmm. and they have to actually commit. Mm-hmm. They have to commit to the, the plan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that first climb up to Wonga, if they're not with the eight-hour group by the time they get to the top, that plan is gone because mm-hmm. you'll never catch those guys as a single rider on. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how good a descender you are because there's a big descent mm-hmm. on the other side of Tawonga, which is a 10-minute descent, which is 
you know, these guys are good descenders that we mm-hmm. coach, so mm-hmm. they, they could have a chance. But you, if you don't stay with that group, that's that. So I'm telling them your whole focus is that first climb. You must follow the wheel and, and stay in. Don't worry about your power. Mm-hmm. Don't look at any of your numbers. Yeah. You look at that cassette that's in front of you yeah, yeah. and you don't let that guy go. Um, and if that's what your plan is to be with the eight-hour group, and I think they look at me shocked mm-hmm. like, oh, shit. This is this is a this is a challenge, isn't yeah. it? And and you know, be prepared to risk everything. And and if you don't get to the top of Tawonga with the with the eight hour group, that plan's gone. So because for the other six riders, it's complete opposite advice. You are saying, do not look at anyone around you. Look at your power number, and if people are flying past you, let them go. Them. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, and you know, there will be. Unfortunately, they. And fortunately, they have ride leaders. They have a ride, eight-hour ride leader, a nine-hour, a ten-hour, eleven-hour, twelve-hour. And that that job of the um, the ride leader is to get that group to the finish in nine hours, and the ten-hour leader is to get them there under ten hours, mm-hmm. etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a fair bit of pressure on those ride leaders to get the pacing right. And because you stop for uh, refreshments, it's not refreshments; it's for nutrition. Yeah. Um, you have to be very regimented in how you're doing it and we actually coach one of the nine hour leaders in uh in matho so so you know their job for them is to keep the group humming along sort of thing so so i'm saying to the guys who are in that group um good you've got some help but what about the guys who are doing nine hours 30 Mm. or nine hours 20 or eight hours 40 they've got no help Mm. so they have to actually manage the race completely different to the guys who think they're going to try and break eight hours or break nine hours mm-hmm. or break 10 hours. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. On, yeah. um, so, so yes, there's, there's, uh, there's different ways to skin a cat, as you say, and, and depending on how your fitness has gone, how your preparation has gone, did, you know, the things I'm asking is, did you do everything right in your preparation for this? Have you had any illness? Did you have COVID for a start? Um, and, you know, are you, able to ride these numbers based on your training and you know it's no secret that we test the guys this week before Mm -hmm. they go to to peaks and this is a great example of um of understanding your ability and your ambition and and also being prepared to commit to a plan and so it's a great example and i can't wait to see what happens this weekend um with the outcome for all of the guys in it uh, mm-hmm. because everybody's got a different plan and strategy mm-hmm. and some are some are very aggressive mm-hmm. and some are very conservative and i know that you know one guy has been sick and he ha- hasn't been able to prepare properly but he still wants to do the race and i'm saying to him you need to you know be w- more conservative than you would have ever been just so you can get to the finish that's your goal F- you know forget about the times mm-hmm. ride your numbers and be conservative hide mm-hmm. you know get around as efficiently as you can yeah. What's the difference between the advice that you're saying there um, when you're telling an athlete to go for it compared to an Ironman? Because I don't think I, I would almost ever hear you no. give that plan in an Ironman, but they're both similar time the, length. The only, the only thing is similar is their endurance. Mm-hmm. The the heading, they're both endurance, endurance events. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a as a cyclist, you've this particular ride has three testing sections, the three climbs, and everything in between is really just everybody recovering, waiting for the next one. Whereas an Ironman is three sports. So you've got to you've got to swim, ride and run as evenly as you possibly can. And and in the Three Peaks Challenge, the guys between uh, Tawonga and, and Harrietville, which is the cl- start of the climb for Mount Hotham, 
the peloton could be doing 60 k's an hour and you're in a bunch of 40 people mm. and your job is to hide in there and get a free ride mm. um so there's so many different scenarios yeah. Yeah. um that make up the both of those events the only similarity is they end up nine hours 10 hours or 11 hours yeah um but you need to be uh eliminating the risk as a triathlete as an Ironman triathlete you need to be conservative and patient the whole way through um, and there are people in the three peaks who need to do that as well but you know generally every triathlete I coach there aren't any exceptions where you would be risking everything in the swim and then risking everything on the bike and then you know absolutely hammering it on the run from from start to finish yeah. um, you you would as you get closer to the end then you can risk more as a triathlete. Yep. And I think that's the difference. Yeah. And the difference is, uh, would be, the advice would be to a pro, they're going to race it compared to. Yeah, we're talking about the exactly. age group this yep. year. Yeah. We have a, uh, yeah, moving on to our next sport and, and we want to um, touch on triathlon because there's some, it's been some really exciting updates with uh, Lionel Sanders, who, which we just cannot wait to talk about and share on this podcast, but we'll get there in a second because I want to move on to athletics. So, uh, Katrina Pissette, the Pissette, uh, the uh, Australian uh, Victorian, actually uh, 800 meter athlete. She went to Tokyo for the 800 meters. She's the Australian 800 meter record holder, um, and had a really, really disappointing Tokyo. Was out in the first heat, um, and in her interview after, she just said, "No idea what happened." Uh, she put a post on social media a couple days later and said, "I still don't know what happened. I'm just absolutely devastated." She. She was she was had the confidence that she was going to do a Peter Bowl and make it to the final, um, and that was devastating for her. And uh, six months later, um, she's just entered the indoor track circuit in Europe um, and come out with two wins out of two against some of the world's best athletes. And she just broke the Australian indoor eight hundred meter record last week. So a terrific turnaround. I wanted to get your thoughts on on that because we were. Um, we never we were we were a little bit interested in her uh, tactic at Tokyo. She went out super fast because um, she's such a strong athlete, and that's how she races all the time. She likes to go from the front and and basically hang on. She backs her strength in the last hundred or two hundred, which is the biggest thing in eight hundred to to get her home. And uh, she didn't have the strength in Tokyo. She ha- keeps racing with the same tactic. She did it in both those indoor races, led from almost the front, and her strength carried her, and she got some terrific times. So. What are your thoughts on seeing that? And big congratulations to her um, and her racing kind of paying off and her sticking to it. Yeah, I, I remember at the time when I watched her at the Olympics, I just thought, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, um, there's a difference between championship races and racing to a time. And as you know, because you've 800 metres, something you've, you've had a crack at, if you run the race as it's panning out, that's, that's how championship races are run you could actually end up with the slowest ever 800 meter race because people might choose to jog and then sprint the last 100 meters or they might choose to run from the get-go. So you've got all these variations of um, things that can happen. And so her tactic has always been the same. And I was kind of asking the question, she needs to race it, race more championship style events that the outcome of the time is not important. The outcome of the position is. So if you're trying to run a uh, qualifying time, you don't want to run it like a championship race. You want to run it paced properly to achieve the time. And so, but that's the difference between that and a championship race where the win is, is everything. Mm. You, know, it, you, might, you might come third and do a PB and break an Australian record, but I guarantee you, you'll only be kind of happy 
because you didn't win, but you've got an Australian record. That'd be super impressive. But you'd still be going, oh, you know, it's okay, but you know, I'm here to win mm. uh, at that level. So, so I was thinking she needed more championship style <laughs> uh, race practice, so that she she's only going to have that one card to play, which is I'll start from the front and lead from the front and finish at the front. That will work a lot of the time, um, but it depends on the depth of the field, in my opinion. Um, so if you're if you're ranked 15th in the world and you happen to race seven races that you're the number one runner in that race, as compared to when you go to the Olympics, you're 15th runner, that tactic won't work because mm-hmm. they'll just sit on you and just sprint past you, which is what happened mm-hmm. at the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to actually improve your fitness and your, your ability so that you can match them and be – you know, number two ranked runner in the world and that tactic will work every time because mm-hmm. that's happened to many good male runners who um, uh, was the African who held the 800 metre, won the last two. Um, Rhodesia. Rhodesia. How did he run? From the start. Mm. He just ran them off their legs mm. because he was the fittest and bettest yeah. ranked yeah. number. Yeah. If there was someone who was better than him who could hold, hold his – Hold his uh, his feet. Yeah. Hold his wheel. Yeah. Um, he would lose. Yeah. Because he has no other tactic. Yeah. But because he was the best in the world, it worked. And yeah. that was that was my take on. As she gets better, and she's obviously done some more work in being a better runner, that tactic will work more and more. But mm-hmm. I'd love to see her do a lot more championship races so that she has more cards to play well the uh world indoor championships are in a month and uh she's been selected obviously um there's a, a really good group of australian athletes who have been selected because they've run run the qualifying times or they're just good enough and uh that'll be interesting to see we'll see how it plays out in a month and we'll talk about it on the podcast uh, a very similar story in a completely different distance was australia's jack rayner he's 26 years old he's a marathon runner for australia same thing, went to Tokyo uh, and had to DNF due to a stress fracture in his femur, um, which was never gonna, going to end well. But uh, again, he was absolutely devastated with the fact that he DNF'd at Tokyo and so much so that he he's basically said he doesn't count himself as an Olympian, which I think is very harsh on himself. You made it to the Olympics, you raced in the race. He said, I don't count myself as an Olympian because I didn't finish. Um, but he just uh, won the Zatapec a couple of months ago or six weeks ago, I think, uh, 10K on the track. And then he went overseas and just ran a 44-second PB of a 10K on the track. And it was also an Australian record by seven seconds. Um, absolutely terrific performance. And it kind of shocked everyone because he's a marathon runner and it shocked himself. And I really want to talk about this because uh, he said something really interesting. He said... When I was a little bit younger, um, I was basically not fast enough on the track and I kind of held this belief that, um, well, I can't be a track runner and so everyone around me kind of pushed me towards a marathon and I went down that path because that was what I was really good at. And then now he's had a few years of experience under his belt. He's come back. He's a gun marathon runner, but he's come back and had a crack on the track and uh, it really ties in with our belief about uh, strength and base and how a lot of our athletes experience similar things when they train for an endurance event and then eventually, after a big, good period of doing that, they go back to a shorter event. And they run PBs without doing any um, any specific training to that race distance. And that's kind of what Jack Rain has done. It's uh, an amazing stat that keeps happening with athlete after athlete. And and it's it's always intrigued me because I, I know that that's what's happened because I've experienced it by coaching people. 
but it's you know I was just wondering whether it was the same as at that high level as well because age groupers it's clearly <laughs> that is a fact. Um, the bigger aerobic base and fitter you are, you can come back down the the, the distances and run PBs without doing any intensity, um, which is kind of phenomenal. Bizarre, yeah. And there's a few reasons. It's never one reason, as mm. we've always talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and there may be other reasons that I'm not even considered. Um, but one of the things I can, I can really attest to is, you know, if you think about your fitness as a bank, uh, like, you know, a bank that holds money, except your fitness holds fitness. Your bank holds fitness, not money. And the years of, of continuously uh, developing and adapting to training load um, is, is like, um, you know, a huge 50 square, square bank of, of fitness as compared to someone who's been doing it for two years has got this tiny little um, block of fitness that's, that's, you know, could break down at any time. Whereas the person who's done this massive accumulation of years of running um, at a young age, and I don't mean, you know, 10, 11, 12, I mean, you know, 19 to, to 29 sort of thing, yep. that, you know, that is a bank of fitness that you can tap into. It can never be taken away from you. You know, the only way your money can be lost in a bank is if it's robbed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, no one can take your fitness away that you've banked. And and I think that is a key component. Um, and, yeah, sure, he may not have been a fast track runner. He was still bloody good as yeah. a track runner. Yeah. Like, he was always – you know, in, in national age group track stuff, he was right there. Yeah. So when, when he says he's not good enough, he's that's he, him. He's probably playing it. ten or twenty seconds off the pace of the best guys. Which at that level, you have to make a decision. But yeah. Yeah. So so it was. I think it's a great decision that he's moved up up to longer distances, and now he's given him had a little crack at it and risked a bit because he's probably thinking, oh, you know, this. And th- this is the second factor I want to say is when you have no expectation and there's no pressure. Because the other guys who are the track specialists have mm. got all the pressure, you've got nothing to lose, and that's where commitment to a plan and willing to risk everything when you don't really you're not expected to do well, mm. and and now the pressure is going to change because he's already won the Zatapec on the track, and Which now he's a ten kilometre track classic, and yeah. now he's gone to America and and you know broken the Australian uh, track record. track record, yeah. even though he finished third in the race, which is I'm sure he'd be disappointed with not winning, yeah, um, but. But he's got an Australian record, which yeah. could stand for a very long time. Yeah. That is an outstanding time that he's run. It was, by the way, it was twenty-seven fifteen, so twenty-seven minutes fifteen for ten k. That is just absolutely absurd. That's two, two yeah. <laughs> what is that? Two five kilometer efforts in in thirteen and a half, thirteen thirteen forty, basically. Yeah, and you know we know some of the very best five k runners in the world are running between thirteen minutes and thirteen twenty. Um, and the the outstanding runs are under twelve under you know running in the twelves twelve fifties um, but there's not many of them. The guy that won and Jack Rayner won't be disappointed that he lost to this guy. He ran twenty six thirty two. So that's two thirteen sixteens in a row. That is just ridiculous. Mm. You watch any world class five kilometer event, and the winner will run between thirteen and thirteen sixteen. Yeah, exactly. And half the field will run between thirteen ten and thirteen thirty. You know the. Yep. The Olympic qualifier, I think, was 13. 12 for Australia. 12, yeah. Or 13, and, 13, 13. Yeah, and so... Dave McNeil ran 13, 12. Yeah, and so the winners ran 13, 16 twice in a row. That's just absolutely absurd. 
All right, let's move on to uh, triathlon and huge update that's come out from Lionel Sanders um, in the last few months and he's really just unveiling the curtain as to what he's doing. Uh, For some context, Lionel Sanders, one of the best triathletes in the world, uh, especially at Ironman distance, but he's good at both 70.3 and Ironman. Um, And the thing about him is he's he's come second and third a lot because he's in the area of Jan Frodeno, which is just – his nemesis and he, he constantly challenges Jan on social media. It's quite funny, the little interactions they have and they're good friends now, uh, but he's always saying, come on, Jan, race me again, race me again. And Jan's kind of going, well, I'll, I'll beat you again then if I have to, you know. Um, and, and Jan just keeps beating him and he keeps saying, come on, Jan, race me here again. And it's it's great. It's really good for the sport. Um, but, it, you know, from the outside, it kind of looked like he'd, he'd gotten to his peak and he's, he's just not good enough to be the winner. He's just not good enough to be the best in the world. Um and he has taken the opposite approach. He said, no, nah, I'm not giving up. Uh, I need to do something different. And he has enlisted the help of the Norwegians. Uh, and he's gotten one of the Eden brothers, so Gustav Eden, world 70.3 champion. His brother, Mikkel Eden, is now Lionel Sanders' coach. And he's gone down the Norwegian path of training based on lactate. And he's kind of really unveiled this in a lot of his content um, online. And, and he's really showing people what he's doing. And we are just so fascinated in awe and inspired by Lionel. And we cannot wait for his season this year because he's just, uh, he's gotten himself to, he, he basically says this, he's gotten himself to where he is based on true determination and grit, but not very good training principles, which is incredible. And now he's got the world's best training principles behind him. We can't wait to see how he's going to go. Doesn't it show you, this is a point you made to me, which really resonated. Like he he's saying he doesn't think he had a very good training program. Look how successful he was. And so he's just proven that even with a mediocre program with consistency and determination and motivation that you can still achieve as long as you're consistent because he's, he's a hard trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, like, that's probably been his downfall is he just flogs himself mm-hmm. so hard. And, and so now I, I love the fact that he, it's almost like an alcoholic. You can't not be an alcoholic unless you admit that you're an alcoholic. You can't improve as an athlete unless you admit that that you you can do things better. Mm-hmm. Um, if you keep saying I can't do any better and I'm going to keep t- training the way I am, well, you will still the same. You'll stay the same. There's no doubt about that. You will stay the same unless you change something. Mm-hmm. So I love the fact that he's saying, "Well, I want to be better, and the only way I can do it is changing something." And boy, is he going about it the right way. He is embracing and you know listening and and. He's said he's learned so much about training that he has in the last short period and and he's trusting the process and he's going to do it 100%. And I absolutely love his attitude and I, I'm wanting him to succeed because I think it would be a great example for, you know, all the listeners out there, um, you know, especially the, the everyday triathlete, the everyday athlete, the age grouper, you know, there's a few lessons here, you know, A, be consistent in whatever you're doing. That'll get you a long way. Mm. B, don't just keep doing the same stuff. If you're not getting help from a coach, don't just keep doing the same stuff and expecting a different result. You need to do something different. Um, you know, if you keep fading every time you do a triathlon, don't sign up to the next one until you're going to change that plan mm-hmm. and change the training plan, change the actual race plan, change everything about you, what you're doing. Otherwise, guess what? The same thing's going to happen twenty times in a row. Yeah. Um. So. So you know we 
we we love the Norwegians, we love the, the Europeans, the Belgians, because they're just willing to try stuff that's different. And and their attitude has been, oh, nothing much has changed in exercise physiology in the last 30 years. It's about time we tried mm. to experiment and see if we can get anywhere. And guess what's happened? Mm. They're now the world leaders and mm-hmm. they're dominating a lot of the pro cycling races. They're now, you know, right up there in triathlon. They've, they've won the Olympics, um, you know, so... So as we've said many times, you know, people are doing uh, groundbreaking stuff. We need to all get on board and, and see what it's about. And and I certainly am, and so are you as coaches. We want to embrace new stuff mm-hmm. so that we can actually help uh, help ourselves learn to coach better. Yep. Um, and, and I'm definitely not sitting here saying I know everything because I don't. And, and the minute I see something that works for others, I want to find out about it yep. and I want to see – can I implement lactate training with everyday cyclists? How diff- a triathlete or cyclist or runner? How difficult is this going to be realistically to do? Mm. You know, we, we don't have time to be beside our athlete mm. taking lactate off their ear mm. every time they've done a interval. an interval. Yeah. You know, is this a practical solution? Can mm-hmm. we do it? Mm-hmm. Um, or can we get a lactate test and then know what our power and our running pace is and our heart rate according to that number? And then use that as a generalization and then just maybe take a few lactate tests here and there. Mm-hmm. These are things I'm thinking about already, um, about how – because we know that it's more accurate. We already know that. Yeah. It's, but it still has its issues because yeah. there is a lag. Yeah. Um, just like heart rate has a lag. Yeah. The lactate – you know, you can finish an interval and then take lactate right then 10 seconds later – and then, you know, like heart rate, it still goes up mm. another 20 seconds when you finish the interval. Mm. Um, lactate can still be climbing yeah. and, then it cl- and then it falls. So so there's still these issues with everything we do. Yeah. And as we already found with lactate testing, when they actually find that threshold of where you go up, there is a margin for error there. And so it's they, they approximate once because the graph kind of spikes in, in lactate. If you look at the graph, it, um, there's kind of a bunch of dots there where they're taking – your lactate levels every minute or so um, because they can't take it every 10 seconds. By the time that it spikes, they're saying it's somewhere around here, but we, we couldn't say it was exactly 2.35 millimoles or 2.64 millimoles. You know, it was, it comes up as 2.4 and it's going to be about there. Yeah. yeah there's uh, there's so much to that. But anyway, that's, that's kind of what I think. Uh, and I could be proven completely wrong with this, but I, I just think this is, this is the future yeah. of, of how, and look, power meters were, you know, the biggest change that's been in cycling um, in the last 20 years. And, and, you know, the power meters for runners will be available and functional very soon. But I think training, uh, training to power, training to heart rate, training to average speed, uh, training to lactate is mm. going to be is going to be the next thing. And, and, you know, we've been investigating for the last year about how best to measure it and test it and um, done some really good research. And we're kind of at a point now where we think we can implement it with our coaching and um, and it's going to be exciting time, I think, because uh, we will be able to train more accurately. And we think we train very accurately already. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but this would be—it's more confirmation, I think, that yep. we're in the right area. Yep. We don't want to overcomplicate it yep. um, because we are dealing with everyday people who are not professionals. Mm-hmm. And so, if we can work out the science behind it, and then just say this is all you need to do yep. um, based on what we've researched, then I think that's. That's that's the way people will will embrace it, I think. And as with everything we do, because there's a lot to the coaching program and 
you say to athletes, here's all your options of what you could do. And athletes will pick and say, I'm willing to do that. I'm not willing to do that, you know. And this is just one of those things where some athletes will take on board and say, I'm willing to, you know, really dive into this. And some athletes will just say, no, that is way too much. Not willing to do it. I'm just an age grouper. I'll stick to the the training principles that work very well, you know. That's so spot on. And, you know, we have the range. You know, mm-hmm. guys are saying, what else can I do that's yep. going to help me become better? Yep. And and as I've said, it's not about winning. It's about being better version of what you are. And and everybody who comes to us for help is actually, whether they're a beginner, an intermediate or elite, they are all wanting the same thing, which is to improve themselves. And if you're at the elite end, you could improve yourself to win. If you're at the beginner end, you'll just improve yourself to have a more enjoyable day. Yeah. Um, but they're all admirable goals yep. and they're the things that we're trying to create and make make the program manageable because everybody has different times and, and uh, available periods in their life to commit to things. And, yep. But if you're going to do things properly, you know, whether you're a beginner or not, y- you can still use this technology. It's, yep. it's not like it's, um, you know, that, oh, that's too far out of my reach. Well, mm-hmm. You know, I hear that a lot, you know. I don't want to be that serious. Well, hang on. You've actually contacted me and you're willing to pay for coaching and you've spent 10 grand on a bike. Um, you are reasonably serious yeah. already. Yeah. Um, so, you know, don't don't half don't commit yeah. um, like we're talking about with, with actual race tactics. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be fascinating uh, next period. And I, I think the Norwegians are, you know, not only the Inga Britsons on the track, mm. but, but I think they're trailblazers and – and I think the fartlek was a Swedish thing. So it's kind of ironic to me in the 60s, fartlek was first introduced by the Swedes, um, which is that Scandinavian. There's something about they just <laughs> love to, to you know, explore. And yeah. um, and I just think if you – beautiful countries to live in, but boy – you have to be pretty tough to live there. It is freezing. Yeah, yeah. We had uh, the Norwegian coach, Arul Dvarden, on uh, the podcast late last year and uh, he's been posting a lot of social media stuff over winter where instead of getting out on his bike because, you know, his hometown in Norway is under 10 feet of snow, he, he goes on a long endurance cross-country run. <laughs> so he's cross-country skiing yep. um, instead of a endurance run or endurance ride, which I absolutely love. My last point on that, I'll say, is that it's been great to get to talk to a lot of pro athletes, but a lot of the athletes that share their content online, like Lionel Sanders, it really unveils the curtain and shows that there's no magic wand happening back there. And one of the best Ironman athletes in the world had his program uh, pretty pretty much not not right, you know. And uh, we assume that because they're pros, they must be doing everything perfect. We, we have to copy exactly what they do. And uh, the old adage, you know, there's that story where um, people will – uh, try and model success and they'll try and model exactly what why someone's successful and you might watch Lionel Sanders and he ties his shoe up, his, his left foot first and his right foot and then he scratches his, his right head before he runs and so everyone thinks that's the key to his success and that's a, an exaggerated example. But, uh, you know, even the pros, as someone as good as him can be getting it so wrong and so everyone's learning, everyone's developing. We've already spoken to a lot of pros that are, have different approaches to training um, and, I mean, even Ellie Salthouse said something interesting last week where she said a lot of the top triathletes are doing the same sort of training, um, which I agree with. But then the flip side of that coin is uh, they're doing a lot of things very different. And like those small things that they're doing different add up to big changes. And so, um, yeah, not everyone's getting it right and everyone has a chance to improve. You only have to have a 1% improvement and that could be you coming third or first. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's there's so many examples of what you're saying is true. And, and the good thing I've read is that these experts who are trailblazers – 
are experimenting. Exactly. Because yeah. they actually don't know themselves. Yeah. And the only way to find out how things work is to experiment. Mm-hmm. And as you know, I'm forever doing that to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is because once you've trialed it with something and it's successful, then you can develop that uh, success program mm-hmm. and you keep tinkering with it until you think that you know you're getting closer to a perfect program and Mm -hmm. you know you got to be careful you know the program that Lionel had was probably fantastic but it didn't suit him yeah it wasn't enabling him to uh to improve it got him very good obviously yes (laughs) yep very last thing I want to mention, and this will be the end of the podcast, but in the triathlon world, and the triathlon scene is going to be so exciting this year, uh, just to see how the pros stack up against each other in what should be a relatively COVID normal year with um, lack of races. We just had Dubai 70.3 over the weekend, and there were some ridiculous times posted, and I think it's just a fast course, because um, those times were, they were 20 minutes ahead of the you know the pros in Geelong, so um Something about, you know, you, you spoke about uh, the fact that on the bike leg, on the highway, they're basically getting a, a wind um, tunnel from all the cars going yeah, the same direction. It's an interesting so. course because they've got, you've got the freeway with the cars, um, with witches hats separating the cars who are just going about their everyday business mm. and the, the race is going on. So there's periods where the cars would be blocking the wind and, mm. and there's motorbikes with the lead pack and, and of course the triathletes are getting that swapping turn. So, so it's, a, it's almost like all the, all the gods are aligning yeah and it's a fast hot mix yeah flat course yeah um so so there's periods where you're getting an unreal advantage which is not cheating yeah it's just it's just that course the course yeah and and to to ride a 152 for 90k at 47 k's an hour just think about that for a second yeah Yeah. (laughs) that seems a little bit unrealistic to me yeah yeah um so so you know it's still it's still unbelievably Good riding. You yeah. still have to ride your bike, no matter what the conditions are. Yeah, I just don't think it's. Uh, you know, I'm not taking anything away from what yeah, you've yeah. done, but you know, I, I think comparing it to other courses around the world, it's there's nothing like it. Yeah. Um, and look, the winner still ran 68 minutes, a 108 half marathon. Let's just get that out there. That's pretty fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, Which again, dead flat course compared to, you know, the win. Uh, Sam Upton and Geelong ran what 71 was it? Uh, two, yeah, so yeah, and but that's a bit more undulating. Yeah, 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 a bit more undulating. It's very undulating. You know? It was yeah. very windy. Yeah, on that day. Yeah, um, and don't forget if you've had an easier ride, and that seems even a funny <laughs> thing to say, you've ridden a ten-minute PB or an yeah. eight-minute PB. But if you're not pushing the power for the equivalent speed, you are actually having an easier ride. Yeah, um, so you should be able to run better. Yeah, but there was two reasons I wanted to bring up that race. Um, one is because of the fast times, and uh, in the women's race, Daniela Rife was unable to back up her win from last year, and she has only, um, I think there was an insane stat that she has only not been first on the podium in a race she's in the last six years, um, like a handful of times, four times or something, um, which is incredible for a 70.3 stat. Uh, but she was beaten by Laura Phillip, the German, who, and this is the important point, uh, took it out just 13 seconds off the fastest time ever for a 70.3 across any course. And like you're saying, you can't cross-compare courses, but they do you know, have the best times across 70.3s. Um, and she was 13 seconds off the fastest time ever, which says a lot. And Martin Van Riel won the men's, and he is an ITU triathlete um, who stepped up to 70.3. And this is happening a lot more, and this is why I think – triathlon scene is going to become so exciting because this kind of crossover is happening more and more you know Blumenfeld who the Norwegian who won the Olympics is now given having a crack at 70.3 in Ironmans Van Riel's done a few 70.3s but he took out this one and, and absolutely dominated so 
um, you know, it's the opposite to what we're talking about with, um, you know, more base help speed. His speed seemed to help him, especially in transitions with uh, the 70.3. But most importantly, Blumenfeld proved he was human in this race and he had an absolute disaster. He came 14th. He was way off the pace um, in his own words. It was shit from the start. Um, and something went wrong there. And that shows that they're experimenting, they're doing different training blocks. And yeah, he butchered this race. And that for me was good to see because it did prove that he was human and, and beatable. And don't forget, George, what is the most important race for him? The World Championships, mm-hmm. the 70.3. Mm-hmm. Where are we? March. Yep. Okay. So that has to be rammed home to the listeners. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be in March form. Uh, you don't want to be in October form yep. in March. Yep. You want to be in October. The best form of your life in October, yeah. And sure, and he he's and we've talked about that in cycling. You know, we see Sagan and and Alaphilippe go to you know twenty other races and come nowhere, and yet when it counts, the race they want to perform in, they're the winners. Mm. And mark my words, he'll be right there in October. Um, Learned a whole lot more from. You know, he had, he had a puncture in this race, which cost him eight minutes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you better tell everybody that. Yeah. Um, so, so. But he, yeah. He said he was going bad anyway. He was off. The, he was, yeah. he was two minutes behind on, the pack in the swim. swim. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so he's, he was actually, yeah, yeah. and we don't know what training he's done. He's yeah. not telling us what training he's done. Yeah. So he could have been in the middle of the hardest block of training. So there's so much that goes into it. So we just don't know enough about the information. So I, I just, my thing I'm sticking to is, They've got it right when it counted. Yeah, Olympics. exactly. Yeah. He's also won other world titles mm-hmm. um, and their squad has done, you know, unbelievably when it counted. Mm-hmm. And and so I would be surprised if this isn't the case yep. when, when it counts most. Yep. That's it for this episode. Like we said, so much packed information uh, to look into. And like we, said, we, like we said, we can't wait for the triathlon racing calendar this year. So many good events to look forward to and we'll keep you updated with uh, everything we see across the cycling, athletics and triathlon world. That's it for now. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. 